You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, there it is. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody, online to Mosaic Church. I'm Morgan, the lead pastor here, if you're new. Uh, We're in week two of the series we're calling Zoe and looking at three things in our time in it. First, we're looking at the incredible and amazing promise of Jesus Christ that he wants to give us something called abundant life. Second, we're looking at a problem or a tension we experience that gets in the way of that. And finally, looking at a practice that can help us break through. So each week, there's the promise, problem in the middle, practice will apply. You got it? Got it. All right, here we go. Very good. Let's get into our time in God's Word. Our scripture reading is going to be from Luke chapter 6. Here we go. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with his shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's the reading of God's word today. All his people said, amen, amen. Hey, do you remember your first job? Your first job? It's all coming back now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, For me, I was 15 years old, and I worked at what I'm pretty sure was the last full-service gas station in the United States. Uh, And it was my job to go out and pump people's gas, uh, wash their windshields, and, you know, put the air back in their tires. And I hated it. I hate it. I remember three things about it. One, I remember my hands would like freeze in the winter when you're trying to unscrew the little cap where you, you know, the thing where you put the air in the tires. I'm sure it's got a technical term somewhere, but I never learned it. Proving number two, I was terrible at my job and I was so bad that one time I tried to close a little old lady's hood while it was still propped up. And I dented and bent it and my boss was furious and, you know, it cost literally 40 times what I got paid to fix it. And third, I remember being offered a cigarette for the first time by the manager, excuse me, the mechanic who worked there. Now, thankfully, he was an older guy with yellow teeth, and he was not a popular kid or a pretty cheerleader. Otherwise, my answer might have been yes instead of no. But I was glad for the money, but I hated the job. What about you? you? Now, my point is, we have a complicated relationship with our work, do we not? We do. Our lives are spent to a great degree working, thinking about work, 
trying to do more work, trying to do less work, forgetting about work, vacationing from work, and then one day maybe retiring from work. Or if you're Tom Brady, the football player, you spend your life working, then retiring, then unretiring from work, then going back to work, then re-retiring before you get another job, going to do more work somewhere else. The point is most of us will spend an enormous amount of our adult lives working, and if you're a parent, especially you were just on the stage here of a newborn or a toddler, you are also working the night shift, that is, at home before you're expected to go out into the world and be a productive human. Yes, day after day, it is off to work we go. It seems like this is something important to talk about. So let's do it. Right now, we're going to explore here today the tension between work, rest, and the promise of abundant life. We're going to do that in four parts today. Going to do that by seeing, number one, a picture. Number two, the pressures. There are five pressures we feel. Number three, a plan that God has for us. And finally, a practice to apply. Picture, pressures, plan and practice. Here we go. What do I mean? Let's get it as we go. Number one, there's a picture here. There's a kind of a picture. This passage gives us something I'll call a prophetic picture. Now, when I say prophetic, all the charismatics in the room get real excited. <laughs> like, oh, he's being super spiritual. Yes, Lord, I prayed for him this week. He got it in the, in the secret place. I know he's been there. <laughs> But other folks are mystified, like prophetic. What did he say? Pathetic? I don't know. Prosthetic? Maybe. You know, but prophetic. And when I say prophetic, I mean a literal picture that points to a larger spiritual reality. We try to see it. What's happened with this man in the synagogue in Luke 6? We're told here that his hand has shriveled. He cannot use one of his hands anymore. Now, you should know that hands are a really big deal in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, the use of one's hands is symbolic for your ability to produce, to work, to make something. Work and hands are connected. For example, literally work or toil, work or toil, and hands appear in the same verse 54 times. Second, uh, when God created people, come on, he used his hands, he reached into the dirt, he formed people. Later, the psalmist says, God, I sing for joy, not at the work of your, you know, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, but <laughs> sing for joy at the works of your hands. People in the Old Testament were known by their hands. For example, when soft-handed Jacob deceived his blind father Isaac, what did he do? He disguised his hands. He put animal skins on to try to trick his dad into thinking he was his hairy, strong-handed brother Esau. The father knew his sons other hands. Later in Israel's history, as long as Moses kept his hands up when the Israelites were doing battle, they would win. When his hands went down, they suffered and lost. Later on, to serve in the temple, a priest had to have clean what? Come on. Hands. Yeah, hands are a big deal. But this wasn't, wasn't just any hand that was shriveled. The gospel writer Luke gives us a specific detail about this hand. It says a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, in ancient times, the right hand was a symbol of power. People of importance, people of influence sat at the right hand of the king. Psalm 16 says, with God at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Psalm 18 says, God, your right hand sustains me. Hands are a symbol for work. The right hand is a symbol of power and influence. So, 
Back to the text. How did, a, how did this man's hand come to be like that? What happened to him? We don't know exactly. But what we do know is that this man in this moment with this shriveled right hand standing in front of the Pharisees, the disciples, the people in the synagogue, Jesus that day, he is a picture of a person whose relationship with work has become dysfunctional and broken. He is a person for whom work is a struggle, maybe even impossible. This man with this shriveled right hand is a picture, perhaps, of many of us today. We come into the synagogue, into the church, into the place of worship, struggling with our work and in need of healing to be able to work rightly. And let me pause at this point and say this. The real problem with work, any work, isn't the work itself. Mm -mm. You should hear that today. Work in the Bible is inherently good. Work existed before humanity fell. And unlike the ancient Greco-Roman gods who never worked, sat on clouds and pillows all day, and saw work as the domain of weak, feeble mortals, the God of the Bible labored, worked to create. Jesus said God his Father was still working to this day. We will work in the new heavens and the new earth and the world to come. Work is good. Work is a gift. Work is honorable. Whether you're pumping gas, you're frying potatoes, you're loading trucks, you're flying a mouse at a desk all day. Work itself is not our problem. So what is? What is our problem? Our problem is what happens when work becomes more than work? When work becomes more than work. Work, when it's made into something it was never meant to be, it deforms us. It leaves us living less than how God intended. Work done wrongly shrivels us. Work handled wrongly grinds us down. See, again, it's not work that's the problem. It's work done wrongly, handled wrongly, that is. Now, in the back of our minds, we know this kind of thing can happen to us, might happen to us. So why in the world would we ever allow it to happen to us? Why would we ever look at our work and abuse it or allow it to misuse us? How does someone end up shriveled? The word literally is withered here, ground down, exhausted. How do we end up there? Number two, it's because of some pressures we feel. Five Unique pressures, at least. Only have time for five. Five unique pressures we feel right now to use work wrongly. Overwork, underwork, abuse our work. It causes our hands to be shriveled. First, we'll call it a technological pressure. Yeah, you see that thing on the screen right there. You know, this, this $1,000 computer you're holding in your, in your hand right now, that you for sure are using it only to take notes right now. You're not messaging your friends, you're not checking sports scores, not on social media. No, sir, not at all. This thing used to be called a cell phone all the way back in the ancient mid-2000s. It's crazy. But if you're not careful now, we all know what it can become, which is a leash. A beeping, flashing video and video game playing non-stop notification nightmare. If you're like me, you've got emails, texts, voicemails, messages, too many to reply to. And I'm going to get it out all on the table now and feel real good about this, feel better about myself. I can't even begin to describe the sense of guilt I feel as a pastor for not being able to reply to everyone's messages in a timely manner. So I'll just say I'm sorry. <laughs> Does that do? Will you just please forgive me, you know? 
technology, the point is, pressures us not to rest, to always be working. Second pressure we feel is a cultural pressure. Centuries ago, your primary means of identity was, in fact, your family. Now, your primary means of identity is achievement. It's not the love you give, hmm? the character you have, it's how much can produce. And this has gotten so ridiculous, we make posters like this. When I found this, I took a picture of it, asked if we could show it. I'll read it for you. It says, achievement. Don't ever stop at the highest mountain. Now, first of all, it's kind of weird because they're climbing clouds, <laughs> not mountains. But then you read this, you think, wait, hey, well, I shouldn't stop even at the highest mountain, but if I don't stop it even at the highest mountain, would I like, would I like die? Like, when I die, like, from, you know, being frozen to death or hypothermia or lack of oxygen, and the not-so-subtle answer our culture gives us is, yes, yeah, you should kill yourself achieving, climbing, climbing, dying at your desk, right, is the way we somehow think we ought to go out. Our culture pressures us to abuse work, and this is something you see I exemplified in a couple of ways. In some parts of the world, there's something called the 996 culture. You've heard of this. You're expected to work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Or through a certain American, now Austin-based entrepreneur who demands employees work 80 hours or more every week or, hey, hit the road. See, that's cultural pressure. Withers shrivels us. Third pressure we feel is an economic pressure today. What I mean is this. I'll ask you a question. Who works only 40 hours a week anymore and feels like they're getting ahead financially? This is almost impossible to do. And even for those who have great salaries are often burdened to the breaking point with expectations to work double that, maybe triple that. And so, yeah, CEOs can make more, but they're literally working twice, three times as much to get it. And if they say they don't like it or you say you don't like it, you know, there's just a line of people behind you waiting to take it. On the other end of the spectrum, some people are forced to work two, three jobs just to keep up with rising living and housing costs, so almost everyone feels and is overworked. And I read about a, a couple, married couple in New York City, two kids, when their financial situation crumbles, true stories in the news, they look back at their kids, they held hands and jumped out of their high rise, 20 stories up, the only rest they could foresee was ending their own lives. Fourth pressure we feel is a global pressure. We live, that's kind of how it can feel. We live in such an interconnected world now. We are exposed to every catastrophe, every disaster on the planet in a way our ancestors never were. We're, We live in a 24-7 news cycle. The news is always, always on. Someone's always doing or saying something stupid somewhere, somehow. And somebody's got a camera to film it and post it online and get talked about. The pressure you can feel now to know everything, be informed about everything, and respond to everybody's everything is staggering. Hurricanes, earthquakes, shootings, politics, you can literally never rest reading and responding to the news. And fifth, there's a kind of what we'll call a spiritual pressure, last pressure. What's this? Well, if you've seen the movie Creed or Creed 2. I think the third one's coming out this year, right? You know, it's the latest in a long line of Rocky movies. Rocky, of course, the Italian boxer from Philadelphia. And way back in the first Rocky movie, Rocky says something that I think is true of everyone 
everywhere in some way. When asked why he fights, why he trains so hard, Rocky takes a long look inside and then says this. Here's why he fights. He said, if I can go the distance, you see, and that bell rings that I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What's he doing? Well, he's using his work as a means of spiritually justifying himself, existentially justifying himself. He's saying he's going to be okay spiritually because of what he can do physically. He's saying, if I can do enough, I can quiet the inner murmur of my soul, which never lets me rest. If I can do enough, I'll be enough. And that, and you know, if I can do enough, I can make five more Rocky movies. <laughs> you know? Some of them will be okay. Some will The one with the Russians is going to have an awesome soundtrack. They'll be bad for a while. Then Michael B. Jordan's going to come back along and make it all okay, you know. The point is, there is a spiritual pressure we feel apart from culture and technology. Something we experience on the inside that pushes us to make our work a false and functional savior. What do we need to see? It's number three, that God all along has had a plan, a plan for us to handle work rightly. Let's find it. With this man, did you notice back in the text here, back in Luke 6, did you notice on what day Jesus healed him? Come on, somebody. Yeah, Sabbath. It says on another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue. You've got to catch this. Jesus uses the Sabbath. He uses a day of rest to heal a man who could not work. Did you catch that? Jesus uses a day of rest to heal a human being's ability to work. Jesus uses the Sabbath to restore a man's relationship with his own body and his own ability to work. Why and how? Uh, Judith Shulevitz is a lady, a Jewish writer. Uh, she wrote an article in the New York Times not too long ago called Bring Back the Sabbath. And in her writing, she talks about how the, she, although she grew up in a traditional religious home, Jewish home, by the time she was an adult, she had left her faith, moved to the big city, and began to work and build her career. And then as she did so, she says, here's what she began to experience. Quote, my mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventure in the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself. After a while, I got lonely and did something that, as a teenager, profoundly put off by her religious education, I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. It was only much later that I developed a theory about my condition. I was suffering from the lack of a Sabbath. There is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. So let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. And she goes on to say, we've got to bring back the Sabbath or we're not going to make it. Shulevitz, Rocky, Jesus Christ, our own souls know we've got a problem. We don't know how to navigate the tension between work and rest. Oh, but God does. And his plan all along was to use the Sabbath to help heal our relationship with work. 
Think about it. When God gave those 10 commandments, of which the Sabbath is one, the Sabbath, of course, is a command to rest. Sabbath means seven. So one out of seven days, people were commanded to rest. It was mandatory. Why? Well, remember when, come on, when the commandments were given. They were given after Israel had come out of slavery, after they'd been freed from centuries of forced labor where they were worked endlessly, their bodies fell, their spirits were broken, and once they were free, once God liberated them, he said, nevermore, my people made in my image were never made to be slaves. God said, I rested from my work when I created the capital U universe, and my people are going to rest when they're going and doing in their own lowercase u universe and i'm going to give them a command to rest but not out of duty but it's for delight to show them they're more than a slave in an empire or a cog in some business plan somewhere see resting proves you're not a slave and by making these one of the ten commandments god is also showing us something it's a bit challenging that a society that encourages, mandates, Sabbath breaking is just as disconnected from God's heart as a society that encourages adultery. A society that encourages, mandates, Sabbath breaking is just as debilitating in the long run as a culture that promotes lying. A society that mandates, encourages Sabbath breaking is just as dehumanizing in the end as one that encourages murder. See, employers who do not encourage Sabbaths are just as unintentionally, give them that, unintentionally cruel as Egyptian taskmasters and individuals who do not obey the Sabbath show that deep down, somewhere, somehow, maybe somewhere, they're still slaves to something. If you can't stop, won't stop. (laughs) If your work breaks bad and it makes you want to jump out of a window, if you can't Sabbath, it shows that you just might have a little Pharaoh sitting on a throne inside. Now, I know I'm pushing some of you now. I'm meddling real good. Stepping on your toes. Just to remind yourself, this is why I came today. This is why I came today. Right? Some of you, achievers are us. I'm guilty as charged. You need to hear this, right? Some of us have a little Pharaoh still driving us, working us, withering us, grinds us until our bodies are shriveled or our relationships are or both. We need a kind of Sabbath rest, both for the soul and for the body. How do we get it? All right. Of all things to say, Jesus of Nazareth comes along in Luke 6 and describes himself as what? What does he call himself? It says, then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying this, hey, y'all, I'm the Lord of rest, by the way. I'm the Lord of rest. I can give you the REM of the soul Hmm. that nothing and no one else can. How could he say this? How does he give it? All right. When Jesus Christ later hung, bled, died on the cross, what was he accomplishing? One of the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, put it like this. He said, the punishment for our peace was upon him. Oh, that's interesting because what kind of person in the Hebrew scriptures experienced neither peace nor rest and was condemned and deserving of punishment? Again, Isaiah told us, same author. He said, there is no peace. There's no rest. Here it is for the wicked. 
For the wicked, the wicked never rest, doesn't have peace. Wait, hang on. It was the wicked who had no peace, the wicked ones who didn't rest, the wicked ones who deserved punishment and separation from God. Yeah, then what was Jesus Christ doing on the cross? He was getting the punishment all of us deserve for all the wicked ways we turn work into more than work, all the ways we worship work, idolize work, let our job become our identity and an idol instead of using work as worship. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died to bring us the peace he deserved, but we did not. And when we believe that and say yes to him, we believe the gospel, come on, we receive the Lord of rest into our lives and our souls. And he says stuff like this to us, no more deadly doing. I'm the Lord of your life. I bought you with my blood. No more abusing your work. You're mine. You're my people. No more worshiping your work. See, Jesus displaces the inner Pharaoh and leads us out to be free to work in a way that honors him, blesses others, and even fulfills us. Listen, when Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day, he shows he is mending, repairing, restoring, healing the cosmic rift between humanity and work. He's restoring our right hands to be able to work and rest rightly. How do we apply this in our lives? How do we apply, pun intended, the rest of the gospel? Well, quite simply, put it like this, we don't just believe it, we practice it. I should say we show we believe it when we practice it. Number four, let's take a look. Practicing the Sabbath. Try to get real practical here. Apply this. That means taking a 24-hour period each week free from work, whatever work is to you. You'll notice Jesus never said, hey, I've come to abolish the Sabbath. No, no. He said, I'm Lord of it. Hmm? He honored the Sabbath. Jesus as a human observed it and he leveraged it to bring about its original intention, which was restoration of the human body and soul. Listen, when you take a Sabbath period of God-aimed rest, you're de-shriveled. You're recreated. You're like a raisin. Turn it back into a grape. Now, come on, somebody. God, God makes wine out of grapes, not raisins. See, oof. Why is this true? The Sabbath isn't something through which we earn God's favor. It's something through which we experience his delight. And remember, he runs the universe, not us. Here are now five ways to practice Sabbath delight of God. First, when you take it, you retell. Retell, what do I mean? When I take my Sabbath, I always begin by connecting with God, prayer, worship, Bible study. By doing that, I am retelling myself the story of who I am, who we are. Here's what I mean. When Adam and Eve... Genesis. We're made on the sixth day. Created in our Christian story. They looked around. They saw everything God had made. He said, be fruitful, multiply, go to work, take care of the garden, but first, go to sleep. And they woke up on the seventh day, which means they could do what? Nothing but rest and enjoy the delight of God over themselves and over creation. The point is, the first thing the first humans did was rest. Before they ever worked, they Sabbathed. 
And when we do the same, we retell ourselves the story of why we were made to be delighted by God, in by God, before we ever do a single thing. Second, we don't just retell, we also recreate. All right. For example, if fishing is your job, perhaps don't fish. But if fishing is not your job, go fish, right? You pursue a hobby outside your vocation, an instrument, you play it, paint something, watch a movie, it makes you feel a certain way about uh, something good. Uh, you know, sometimes for me, I love doing my lawn, trying desperately to make it look good. I enjoy being in the sunshine, outdoors, the process, it's recreative. Third, release, release. What do I mean? Release as many responsibilities as you can. And what I mean by as you can is the reminder that you still have to feed the children on the seventh day. But there is this one little amazing thing. It's called airplane mode. And did you know it actually works when you're not on an airplane? It still does. I would encourage you to work your way into a place where you can say the very, very, very empowering word, no. Fourth, be realistic. What I mean is this. There are just some times in life where it's borderline impossible to Sabbath for extended periods of time. If you're going to be a doctor, you've got to do your residency. And for a few years, it's tough. You're starting a business. There's going to be a need to work and work and work, long overworking at first, as was true in my life as well. And if you're working a job where this is not given or understood, or you are in a financial position where this just is impossible yet, let me encourage you to pray and to cry out to God for help. He's the one, come on, who made the Sabbath. He freed the slaves to be able to rest. Talk about this with someone that you trust, an advisor in your life to pray about what can be done. And if this isn't something currently in your time budget, just start like a three, four hour period, just a little moment and let it grow and grow and grow from there. And finally, relax, relax. When my kids were super small, whenever I would wash my car in the driveway, they would always want to help me. I mean, of course, same thing it means for a lot of you, spilling the soap, uh, kicking over the bucket, spraying themselves, getting everything wet but the car. <laughs> Which, of course, required me at some point or mom to change their clothes because now they got themselves wet and they're screaming or they're angry because their siblings spray them. And at some point, I would inevitably say, why don't you all take a break and go inside and let dad finish. Our heavenly father invites us to do the same, to put down the soap, down the hose, down the bucket, and maybe quit making a mess of the world for a day and allow him, maybe you'd go better if we didn't work, allow him to go to work on our behalf. Stop asking Christ to help you live unlike he lived. Start asking him to give you the grace and power to live like he lived. That's when abundant life, Zoe, will begin to flourish. All right, it's a way of just sort of processing this, continuing this moment. Our, our music team is going to be coming out here, and they're going to come and minister about this whole thing today. This is a song we're going to sing here all about trading our worn-out selves for his abundant life. Let me take a moment and pray for us, and we'll respond with song. Lord, we come to you. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, Son of Man's Lord of the Sabbath, Lord, give us the grace to lean into the directionality your life clearly gave us, to embrace a practice that turns a raisin back into a grape.
Lord, help us. We want to become the new wine in the world for people. We need this to be able to do so. We repent for all the ways in which we've abused our bodies or work in the name of something else. Lord, help us steward this tension rightly and experience your abundant life in the middle of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.